Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex, and I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford Computer Science PhD and a Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation. My name is Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Miller. He is the Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer at Cigna Corporation. Steve has years of expertise as a medical researcher, clinician, administrator, and healthcare leader. Dr. Miller has an MBA from the Olin School of Business at Washington University in St. Louis and an MD from the University of Missouri in Kansas City. He did a pathology fellowship at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the Cardiology Fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. Steve, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a pleasure to have you on and I think our audience will really enjoy this conversation. Steve, for, you know, Alex and I have read a lot about you and you came to our class at Harvard Business School and, and gave us a little bit of a background about your amazing career. But for those in our audience who aren't as familiar with your story, can you tell us a little bit about your early years and how and why you chose a career in medicine and how you eventually decided to sort of venture off the traditional clinical path? Yeah, so I actually, back 40 years ago, there were six-year medical schools in the United States, similar to how there are in many other countries. And I went to medical school right out of high school and uh, actually had wanted to be a large animal vet, but my mother encouraged me to go to medical school. So I applied knowing I wouldn't get in and uh, Lord, you know, I was surprised when they accepted me. I actually loved it. It was so stimulating. And so I started applying for different fellowships while a medical student. So I took a year off to do cancer research at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. I took additional time off to be a cardiology fellow at the University of California, San Francisco. Eventually finished my medical school and went to do an internal medicine residency at the University of Colorado. Uh, Then I did probably the smartest thing I ever did in my career, and that is I took a year off with my fiance, who was also a medicine resident, And we went around the world. So we worked in a lot of third world uh, environments, uh, but also did a lot of sightseeing. It was probably the year I learned the most about both myself and about healthcare. Came back and did a nephrology uh, fellowship at Washington University, then a transplant fellowship at Washington University, and then eventually got into administration and got my MBA at Washington University. So uh, love training, would still be in training if my wife didn't make me go out and get a job. Thank you, Steve. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I always joke around that. I think my biggest regret in life, it's not really a joke, but my biggest regret in life is not taking a year off between medical school or during medical school, because I just kind of went, you know, straight through. And I was always the youngest one by a couple of years, but I eventually ended up on the admissions committee at Cornell, where I went to med school. And nowadays, I think, you know, more and more people are taking a year or two off doing medical mission work or just traveling the world. I think it's a really stimulating and exciting time to actually take some time off from the traditional path. Just switching gears here a little bit, 
the, the reason you came to Harvard Business School and came to g- give a fantastic talk to our class was because of we we're talking about PBMs and, and the merger between Cigna and Express Scripts. So it's been almost three years since Cigna's $67 billion acquisition of Express Scripts closed in December of 2018, I believe. And before this buyout, you've been active for many years as Express Scripts CMO in, in fighting the constant rise in drug costs, which is obviously a big problem. Can you share with us what you consider were the main aims and the goals of this merger and, and what it actually was able to achieve since it went through? Yeah. So uh, to your point, one of the things that people are most interested in is drug pricing. If you think about it, drugs are getting more powerful. They're really uh, often the, the lead in how we treat people. And coming from Express Scripts, we were the largest PBM in the country. And so we were managing pharmacy for about 80 million lives. Uh, so it put me in a really great position to try to influence drug policy. When Cigna bought Express Scripts, they actually had three things in mind. They thought, number one, drugs were going to be really important and we had to have the best managers of drugs uh, possible. Number two is they thought that digital was going to become really important in the future and Express Scripts had actually started moving in the digital direction uh, earlier than many other big health players. And then number three is Cigna was very good in behavioral health. And they thought that if you could pull all three of these levers, behavioral health, digital uh, slash virtual, and pharmaceuticals, you could actually change the healthcare system and get to a lower cost of care. And that's the road we've been on because the number one issue for most people in America is affordability of healthcare. And if we can come up with a different model for healthcare, Hopefully, we can actually continue to give people great care, but at a lower cost. Yeah, Steve. So you, I, I really wanted to dig deeper into uh, one of those levers, which is the digital lever, because Alex and I are just really enthused by the whole world that that's ahead of us when it comes to not just digital therapeutics, but digital diagnostics, RPM, and that entire world. So as you know, prescription digital therapeutics, PDTs, uh, is becoming increasingly prominent with you know, Pear, Click, Achilles, some very prominent names in this space. And then Pear's about to go public with a close to $2 billion SPAC. And unlike health and wellness apps, PDTs are clinically validated, prescribed by physicians or, or clinicians, and more and more Pears and PBMs are covering them. But according to a survey I was, um, I was reading the other day by Pear and Avalair, they recently uh, surveyed 180 payers and PBMs and benefit consultants, and 140 of them still aren't quite familiar with PDTs. But the 40 that had familiarity with PDTs covered it or were planning to cover it in the next one to two years. And what I found interesting is that these 40 folks, they had some pretty identifiable processes in place as to how to evaluate PDTs. Sort of first, you know, the PBMs look at it, then you usually have the PNT, the, the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee look at it, or the Medical Benefits Committee. And so I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how Express Scripts and Cigna thinks about covering digital therapeutics and broadly digital products and the processes that are in place. And do you think this space is going to revolutionize the therapeutic space similar to how biotech revolutionized the space in the 70s, 80s and onwards? Yeah, it is a fantastic question. So as you know, we actually had the first digital formulary. So we got into this very early because we saw the same potential that you see. 
And we have to change healthcare. And if we keep doing healthcare the way we do it today, we're not going to make any progress. I'll give you an example. If you go to the American College of Physicians uh, Museum in Philadelphia, they have a model of a physician's office from 100 years ago. And if you go into your great facilities at Harvard today, it looks almost identical. We have not changed the model and the productivity is almost identical too. And so I view it as digital therapeutics has that capability of totally changing the game. And so we actually started very early on uh, saying, what do we do that's for drugs that we can't do for digital therapeutics? We have all the medical expertise. We have the processes to evaluate these things. And our clients can't do this on their own. They need someone to put a stamp of approval on this. And not only can I evaluate them, but I can actually aggregate customers and buy them at a cheaper price. And so it fits our model almost perfectly. So we started our first digital formulary now a couple of years ago, and we have committees in place. We have a process in place. We're able to approve them. We're able to buy them at scale. We're able to make sure they integrate into our electronic systems. And we also can assess, are they safe for people to be using? That is, can they be hacked? Can, is the data secure? all the things that you would want to know about these. And so we believe we are literally the near perfect application for these. And we believe if we use them properly, like I talked about that second lever of drugs, digital and behavioral, uh, and there's obviously a Venn diagram where they all overlap, uh, but this is how you get to a platform that changes healthcare for the better. Yeah, Steve, that resonates a lot with us. And, and there's just so much, you know, we could probably spend a whole hour talking about digital products. But I think what a lot of folks really appreciate is that patients can have access to, you know, pills can't talk, but digital products can talk and communicate and can give you data and, and patients can have access to it 24 seven. There's digital biomarkers like voice or, or all these other RPM metrics that you can make use of and, and integrate into your digital offering in real time that you really can't do with traditional products. Real world evidence is big for a lot of payers that is more amenable in the digital world versus the traditional world. So there, there's a lot to be done there. And I'm really excited where Cigna and Express Scripts is taking our, our digital formularies. Wanted to move a little bit beyond therapeutics and, and talk broadly about the different offerings within the life sciences and, and how pairs and PBMs think about reimbursing those. Steve, you know, we've been both thinking a lot about innovation and entrepreneurship in the healthcare space. And we, with increasing focus on value-based healthcare and outcomes, it seems that proper diagnosis is key and will be the basis of personalized treatment. But diagnostics have very unique reimbursement challenges compared to medical devices and therapeutics. Pairs tend to be hesitant to cover diagnostics. So, you know, manufacturers and providers often have to get pretty creative with code stacking or applying for new codes. And with devices, you know, most of the time, it's not even reimbursed by pairs. So manufacturers rely on contracts with hospitals, GPOs, and things like that. So can you outline for us, from the perspective of pair and a PBM, how do you think about covering new products in each of these three spaces? And, and what are the things that you look for in innovative products? Yeah, so, uh, you know, when you look at the problem from the innovator side, 
they look at it and they say, oh, these payers just hire a bunch of knuckleheads who just have a stamp that says denied. And they think that we're not very sophisticated. Now, if you step back for a second and you say United Healthcare is a about $260 billion a year company. Cigna is a $170 billion company. You really think we're not very sophisticated? We actually hire some pretty good people. The trouble for the diagnostics uh, in the device companies is they want someone else to subsidize their research. They want the payers to subsidize their research. Well, you know, most of my clients are uh, self-insured. They never signed up for the, the role of paying for the diagnostic company to get their preliminary data to prove they're effective. So the model is incorrect. That is, these companies, when they want to bring a new test to the marketplace or a new, ther- uh, a new uh, tool to the marketplace, they got to figure out how are they going to fund it all the way to the end where you can show a benefit for it. Because it shouldn't be, society has not signed up for that responsibility right now. And so you got to figure out, am I going to use the NIH funding pathway? Am I going to use a venture funding pathway? But you're going to have to come up with some funding pathway because believing that the payers should fund it because it sounds like a good idea. So let me give you a really good example that we face every day right now, liquid biopsies. Intuitively, they sound like a great idea. But, you know, lead time bias may be just that. Knowing early about a cancer may just add anxiety and cost, but it may not improve outcomes. We've seen this in prostate cancer, where we've left many men impotent or incontinent because we treat prostate cancer too aggressively at an early stage. Yet if you're one of these companies that are coming out with diagnostic tests to diagnose cancers early, you have to also be able to demonstrate that you improve outcomes or lower costs or have some other positive attribute. And you shouldn't expect that the payers are going to be the ones that fund that research. So this is a really tough problem because like you, I want to see these advances, but I also want to see a sustainable model that works for both the innovator, but also for the patient and the payer community. Steve, that's incredibly fascinating and a perspective that oftentimes is not heard, I think, by the entrepreneurial and the, and the innovator community. Because what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is ultimately it comes down to clinical effectiveness. Because I think there's some thought uh, that, you know, the delta between getting something reimbursed by payers and getting something FDA approved is quite large in the medical device and the diagnostic space in a different way than it is in the therapeutic space. Oftentimes people think in the therapeutic space, the difficult challenge is actually getting through the clinical trials and getting FDA approval, and then you're pretty much set to go with billion dollar valuations. And that in the device and diagnostic space, it's it's still that, that marketing and reimbursement, that tail-ended challenge is still there. But if I'm hearing you correctly, it's sort of less about diagnostics versus devices versus therapeutics. It's more about what that particular intervention or product offers to patients and whether or not it's cost effective and clinically effective. Is that is that sort of correct? Well, that's absolutely right. But let me give you some, you know, some examples. When the CT scanner came out, the CT scanner was going to revolutionize healthcare. 
We were going to be able to look inside the body. We were going to be able to be more precise about who we did surgery on. We were going to improve outcomes, and we were going to dramatically lower the cost of healthcare. None of that came to fruition, right? We do a lot of CT scans, but we actually have seen healthcare costs continue to go up, and we continue to do many unnecessary surgeries because it's not precise enough. And so when you have these next generation devices or next generation tests that make these same claims that it's going to revolutionize healthcare, that patients would have better outcomes and lower costs, you need to prove it. And you got to decide who's going to pay to develop that data. Right now, these companies are saying, oh, these insurance companies are horrible because all they do is deny this when it's obvious that it should work. Well, if it worked in the past, maybe we wouldn't be so jaded today. Thank you. Fascinating insight. And thank you for that perspective, Steve. You know, we could talk for hours, but uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to pass it along to my colleague, Alex, who has a few questions for you. Thank you, Shad. And thank you, Steve. It's a great conversation. When you were talking about uh, how people were describing the promise of CT devices decades ago, this just reminded me of how we talk about AI today, right? Like CT scans are a given. Like I started working in the healthcare space and like I take CT scans as like something that everyone should do, right? But like probably 40 or 50 years ago, it was like the most revolutionary idea. So I absolutely agree with your point that we need to prove that these technologies work. And looking at concepts, for example, like the Gartner cycle of hype, where there is so much inflated expectations about specific technology before it gets adopted in a very productive manner. My question now is about basically all the digital revolution that's happening in healthcare at this stage. I mean, along with the MBA, I'm doing a PhD in healthcare machine learning and focusing on COVID. And one of the things that we have done is, for example, we train machine learning on non-COVID patients. So like historic patients who do not have COVID. And we apply that machine learning algorithm to COVID patients and it achieves fascinating performance, which means that the AI has actually learned a lot about the human body and the human physiology from non-COVID patients. And it was able to apply that to COVID patients, which is like, it's, it sounds fascinating. And I think it just highlights like how much change we're going to see in healthcare. So given your extensive expertise in the space, I wanted to ask, Steve, how do you see the future of healthcare in the next 10 years? What are the biggest changes that will happen in the payer landscape? And maybe on a tangential note, the metaverse now is a very hot concept in terms of like creating digital twins of ourselves. So how will that influence healthcare? Asking some really interesting questions, and we could talk about this for days. But the reality is, is AI is a game changer. Because humans just don't have great memories, and our memories are very biased. Whereas a machine, appropriately programmed, can actually have a much better memory and actually have, uh, have maybe different biases, but surely not the biases that we have. And so the reality is, is you can get much better decision making from AI than you can from a human. But the one thing that you can't get from AI is that same human connection. And so the question is, can you, you, I look at it as you can't have one without the other. That is, when a patient comes to see you, part of it is they want the science, but part of it is they want the art. They want the personal interaction. And so being correct with the diagnosis is really important, but also being able to be personal 
and have that patient relationship. So the question is, how do we build a system that has the best of all of these? And I'll come back to the original premise of even our merger. Remember, I said we want to do pharmaceuticals really well. We want to do uh, digital and virtual really well. We want to do behavioral really well, because as you all know from when your time in med school, the number of patients who actually are coming in manifesting a physical problem because of a behavioral issue is off the charts. And so getting it right, making that right diagnosis, but also having that human contact is going to be really important. And so the system going forward needs to be this. At least this is my barnyard theory. So take it. You're, it's worth exactly what you're paying me for this podcast. You want to figure out what share of the marketplace you can actually scrape off that can be done almost totally digitally, right? These people aren't looking for the human connection. They're just looking for the right answer, and they want to be put on the right therapeutic or get the right test. And there's a percentage of the population out there that can be handled this way really efficiently, really low cost. The money you save there can be reallocated to care for the people that really need that personalized care. And so if you do really good public health, you can also afford to do really good personalized care. And so that, to me, that's the formula. Let's meet people where they want to be met with the resources they need to be met with so that you can actually get some patients treated much better, much less expensively. So you have more resources for those that need more human interaction and maybe even a more expensive approach. And so I personally believe that these new tools open up an entirely new world. So let me give you a really good example. There is a new drug that came out recently uh, for weight loss. And this drug is unlike anything that's been brought to the market before because it causes about 18 to 20% body weight loss. And what's really great about it is you don't even have to do behavioral modification. You don't have to train people in exercise and changing their diet. You just put them on the drug. We have made this a totally digital approach. So we actually use a virtual entry process where they can go online with us. They can sign up for the program. They fill out the questionnaire. We ask all the appropriate questions. We send them a digital scale so we can communicate with them almost on a daily basis, encouraging them, seeing where they get holdups. They get their medicines through the mail. It's a totally virtual process. It has been so successful, the pharmaceutical company had to slow us down enrolling people because we had so many people that were having success with this. The total cost of care, way lower because we're keeping people out of clinics, hospitals, and doctor's offices, yet we're giving them the level of care that they want, and they're having tremendous success. This is an example where you can actually take these new tools and really change the productivity of this, the system, get great patient outcomes at a lower cost. Steve, this is a fascinating example. And just going back to your point in terms of so much of the diseases and of the poor outcomes and diseases comes from factors that can be addressed through behavioral modifications. And basically, when I come to think about all the data that's available to us today, I mean, these companies that are testing, for example, sewage water, right, for different biomarkers of diseases, we have immense capabilities of collecting environmental data, right? Mm -hmm. We have immense capabilities of collecting personal data and digital biomarkers. So we really 
have the capabilities and the infrastructure to implement all these behavioral modifications. And, and the future seems like super interesting from that perspective. And I guess to achieve that future, we need the market incentives to incentivize the innovators to execute on that vision. However, one of the issues within the U.S. healthcare system is that in many aspects and in many verticals, there is a market failure in terms of either the market being monopolized or there is lack of proper regulation in that particular vertical. And we were chatting recently with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, the writer of An American Sickness, and she expressed her frustration with the business environment and healthcare because the primary motive there is the profit. I fully understand that business is a massive force, can be a massive force for good if the right environment is created. So how can we create that environment to leverage business to create this future that we're talking about in healthcare? Yeah, so I think the U.S. market is the greatest market in healthcare because we actually do fund a lot of innovation. And even though there's frustration amongst the innovators, they always want more. This is still a really exciting market. I think there's one fundamental flaw that needs to be addressed, though, and that is in the United States, is healthcare a privilege or is it a right? Because what creates the problem, we actually have a foot in both camps. We have 50% of healthcare paid for by government, highly regulated. We have 50% of healthcare that's paid through mostly employers, that's commercial. And so we get some of the best of both, but we also get some of the worst of both. And so when we look at the disparities in healthcare across our population, it's worse than many other countries that have, because they've chosen to say either healthcare is a privilege and we're going to treat everyone as good as if it's a privilege, or healthcare is a right, and we're going to treat everyone as if it's a right. We are schizophrenic when it comes to that. And so personally, I believe we need to make a declaration of what is the goal of the U.S. healthcare system, and then take the massive resources that we have in healthcare and design for the outcomes we want to have. I never want us to turn away from the commercial markets we have because this has truly been the seat of innovation. And I think Americans' innovation is actually helping the whole world. It's helping the world out of, for instance, this pandemic. And so I'm very much for a free market system, but that free market has inequities that are created by the schism of not us declaring what the goal of the system should be. Steve, that's actually a very interesting perspective in terms of not defining what the goal is creating these, to some extent, extremes. And I absolutely agree with you from the perspective that we need a market system to encourage innovators. I mean, I've spent a good portion of my life in Europe, and I can tell you that all European healthcare companies want to come and sell their product in the US because that is the most promising market for them. And for example, I've had a very good experience with the NHS in England, which it's a really good system in terms of providing care for everyone, but it doesn't create the proper incentives, one for very good talent to stay in. And I'm sorry to say this, but this is the reality. And the second thing is it doesn't provide very strong incentives also for innovators to create products. So I so absolutely appreciate your point on that. Steve, in one of our classes recently, we had a conversation with Lloyd Blankfein from Goldman Sachs, and he was talking about basically his journey and his thoughts after retirement. Steve, recently you've announced your retirement from Signia. 
So after a fruitful and impactful career in healthcare, what are your plans for the future? Is there something specific you're excited to do? And what can we look forward to from a veteran such as yourself? Yeah, so I love healthcare and I'm not going away. So there's two things. One is we haven't talked about my much better half, my wife, is the chairman of medicine at WashU, and she's not retiring. So you don't have to worry about me not having income. She'll be uh, able to be our breadwinner. Uh, but the, the other thing is I'm actually going to uh, continue to do some advising, both to Cigna but to some other companies. I sit on, um, on the board of a company called SureScripts. I'm the chairman of the board there. I sit on a medical device company, MediBeacon. Uh, which is really exciting. So between my, and I will continue to do the teaching like I did at, you know, Harvard. Uh, So there's several uh, schools that I give a series of lectures for. So I'm really excited that I'll have a little more flexibility, but will continue to be able to contribute to the system. Uh, Because I just think there is nothing more exciting than healthcare. And just for, you know, this audience, there is no better degree to have than an MD. An MD gives you more flexibility to do more things, and I've proven it. You can be a clinician, you can be an administrator, you can be a researcher, uh, you can be an entrepreneur, and nothing trains you like uh, having an MD. So I think it's a great entree into any of those careers. Thank you, Stephen. That's, to be honest, the, the goal of our podcast, which is we want to light successful cases and journeys such as yourself to our audience because we want them to understand the amount of flexibility and the amount of optionality that an MD can create. Steve, recently we were having a conversation with Kevin Todd uh, from Beth Israel Lahi, and he mentioned that one of the most important roles for interdisciplinary clinicians is to be a translator meaning to bring solutions from one discipline to another. So, Steve, you've worked on the clinical side, you've worked on the administrative side, and you've had massive exposure to all of these worlds. There's obviously like a lot of different worlds in healthcare where physicians can seek impact and like seek to be a translator between both. So I'm curious to know your thoughts and advice to our audience who are just graduating medical school or who are in their residency now how can they think about maximizing their impact on the healthcare system when they are early in their career? Yeah, so I have a really strong belief that one of the problems for physicians is the archetype of people that go into medical school is exactly the opposite of what we need to change the system. So when you and I go into medical school, you and I compete against each other because whoever gets the best scores is going to get the best residency. Versus when you go to business school, what you guys are learning is it's all about teams. Teams accomplish way more than individuals. So doctors actually are willing to be on teams as long as they're the quarterback. Uh, But that's really not playing team ball. And what you learn in business school and what was so exciting about business is you realize that teams can accomplish way more than an individual. And so what we need is, and med schools are slowly getting there, they're trying to do more team-based learning. But the reality is they're not creating real teams like you create in business school. And as you know, what you want is you want to get, uh, so I'll give you, I'll make it a math test for you. 
if you have a group of people and you ask them to do a math test, there will be some people that aren't very good. They'll get a 40. You'll have other people who are really good at math. They'll get an 80. And the class average will be 60. If I then say I want the class to take this as a team and they raise that average to 75, a 25 percent improvement, people will go, oh, that's a great accomplishment. And I will tell you that's a total failure. Because if you'd given it to the smartest guy in math, you would have had at least an 80. What a team needs to accomplish is a score higher than any individual in the room could have done. And the trouble is for healthcare is too often we'll have the dilettante neurosurgeon and we're just as good as the results he can produce. But if the person that cleans the OR doesn't do a very good job and the patient gets infected, it doesn't matter how good that neurosurgeon is. You need to have an entire team to get great results. And so if I have any message for the people listening to the podcast is even though you've gotten to where you are because you are phenomenal as an individual, brilliant, able to compete, if you really want to change the future, you got to learn how to use the capabilities of a team. And so you got to become team oriented if you're really going to uh, take it to a different level. Steve, this is a fascinating uh, insight. I remember when I was training in Syria, like we had basically a very non-team oriented structure, meaning that you have the chief of department and everyone listens only to the chief of department. And they're like the kind of the top decision maker and everything. And then when I did part of my training in Lebanon or in the US, like I got exposed to a completely different environment. And I think what you've mentioned in terms of the structure of education is just a a very powerful example to how the shape of incentives actually like shapes our behavior in in such a fundamentally strong manner. So thank you very much for sharing your insight there. I guess my last question is how can our audience stay up to date about your work and impact in the healthcare space? Yeah, you know, at this point in time, because I'll continue to uh, advise for Cigna, I can still be reached through Cigna. And I'm willing to share my email address. So it's smiller at express-scripts.com. And uh, I'm very good at responding. So uh, thrilled to interact with anyone who's interested. Thank you very much, Steve. It was a fascinating conversation and uh, really appreciate all the insights that you've shared. Thank, Thank you. you, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, that was such a great conversation with Steve Miller. There's really so many takeaways, but my main one was that payers tend to be somewhat skeptical when new companies say that their revolutionary technology will cut costs for either the payer or for society or for patients at large. For understandable reasons, payers really care about uh, sort of cash outflows because it directly affects sort of their financial sustainability. So they have a high bar for accepting whether or not something truly will cut the cost or utilization of unnecessary care. What's interesting is that historically, when companies have said that a new technology will decrease cost, it it hasn't necessarily been the case. Steve mentioned something interesting about the CT scan which was supposed to change the world and decrease the cost of healthcare, but it really hasn't done that. It's incredibly useful as an imaging mechanism, but in terms of the actual cost of care, that hasn't really borne out. And so my main takeaway is that companies who wish to get reimbursed uh, need to create a very, very compelling narrative and show actual evidence, either real-world evidence or bake it into 
their clinical trials that their technology or their diagnostic or their therapy, whatever it is, will actually make a dent, not just in patient satisfaction or patient stickiness or provider adoption. Those things are important, but in actual compliance and ultimately decreasing the rates of complications or cost to the system at large. And so that was a very interesting perspective that we just don't hear often on the podcast. So I wanted to highlight that. Over to you, Alex. Yeah, no, thank you, Chad. That's a very interesting takeaway. I guess from my side, I have two quick takeaways. I think with Steve today, we've had a great conversation around AI and integration of AI into clinical practice. And I think I really liked the the conclusion that we reached in terms of patients always wanting that human connection with the physician, but AI is able to make much better decisions and make much better analysis of huge amounts of diverse data uh, to inform clinical decision-making. So that would feed into a vision of the future, to which I completely agree. I think that's a very credible vision of AI integration of healthcare, where actually AI and medical doctors are being integrated together into a decision-making framework. And I think that was a very powerful conclusion. The other uh, conclusion that I want to mention is the one about the medical education and how we compared medical education to business education. And I think like, I firmly believe that the incentives in a particular system shapes the behavior of the individuals in that system. So I think one of the challenges with medical education today is that there is such a strong focus on grades. And I think that leads to some sort of an individualistic behavior. Whereas in other education trajectories like business, there is less focus on grades and more focus on teamwork. And I think like I firmly believe that teams can provide results much more than individuals. And I I really like Steve's point around transitioning medical education to one that would encourage more of this team collaboration and creating the right structure within these educational programs uh, to fulfill that. And I know like some of the board exams have transitioned to a pass or fail. I know some medical schools have a pass or fail grading system. So I, I think it is really, it was really interesting to discuss how these incentives or the structure of a system can lead to different behaviors. So certainly this is a conclusion that I wanted to mention. I think that concludes our conclusions section for today. It was a fascinating conversation with Steve and I'm looking forward to our future conversations. And for our audience out there, please remember to follow us on social media and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you soon.